Hello and welcome to European Pharmaceutical Reviews podcast. In this episode, we're talking about the development of RNA interference therapeutics. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Paul Neoy, Vice President of Discovery and Translational Research at our Nylon Pharmaceuticals. I'm Caroline Peachy. I'm the editor of European Pharmaceutical Review, and I'll be your host today. In this episode, we'll be discussing clinical development and manufacturing of RNAi medicines, including the potential to broaden their application from rare diseases to more common indications. Paul will also explore some of the complexities of making these therapies for large patient populations. So hi, Paul. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, before we start the podcast, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, hi, Caroline. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation to join you. Yeah, so I'm I'm the head of what's called Discovery and Translational Research at Alnylam Pharmaceuticals. And you can think about what I do as being the very first part of the whole drug discovery process. So what we're doing is trying to understand human disease, trying to identify new drug targets, and then actually discover the drug for that target and do the work that's needed to take it into um, initial clinical studies. So that's my part of the world at Long Island. Fantastic. That sounds really exciting. Uh, can you tell me a bit more about what you're working on there? So there's two aspects, actually, that I would highlight. The first is the type of medicines that we're developing, because it's it's actually something very new and very novel compared to you know, your kind of traditional approaches to um, drug discovery. So we work on something that's called RNA interference. And all of the medicines that we um, produce are based on RNA interference. So this is an endogenous mechanism that exists in every cell in your body, whereby you can introduce short double-stranded RNA into the cell And what the cell will do, it will take that RNA and it will look for matches. And when it finds a match, it will chop up the RNA. So if you design your RNA against a particular human gene, you can silence that gene using this endogenous mechanism. So this was discovered a couple of decades ago now and and Nobel Prize winning science and what we've really focused on over the last 20 or so years is turning that discovery into a medicine and and that's what's really exciting about what we do but to answer your question about where we focus for us the biggest challenge with this type of medicine is being able to deliver it to the right types of cells and tissues in the body because it's it's not like a small molecule drug where you can take it orally and it will distribute around the body. You need to direct these double-stranded RNAs to the right place in the body. And so we can deliver very well to the liver. And so all of our approved medicines to date have been focused on genes that we can we can knock down in the liver. The liver is an interesting organ, though, because it's involved in a lot of different diseases. And so if you look at the map of what we're working on, it spans 
cardiometabolic disease to to neurological conditions because of the what the liver is involved in and then of course we're excited about taking the technology into other tissues and recently reported some exciting data from our first endeavor into um, central nervous system disease with a different delivery system so we're excited about that data too fantastic so Paul, what are the main benefits of um, these RNA interference medicines compared to more traditional small molecule drugs? The real benefit initially was that you don't have this issue of what's druggable and what's not druggable. So when you think about small molecules, you would always say, well, you know, does the does the enzyme I'm trying to inhibit have a binding pocket where I can dock this molecule and I can block the activity? Or if it was an antibody, you would need to make sure that your target was something that was in the circulation or on the cell surface. With RNA interference, everything is druggable. There's no such thing as an undruggable target. You can silence any gene in the genome and that's what makes it very very powerful from you know the perspective of being able to target things so if you know what's driving the disease you can target it there isn't an issue with drugability so that that was initially a big advantage but actually as we've worked on this challenge of turning rnai into a medicine over the past 20 years the other thing that we've been able to do is develop our medicines to a point where they last So, for example, with our recent platform innovations, we can have a duration of of anywhere from 6 to 12 months with a single subcutaneous injection. So you can turn off a gene for a long period of time. So if you think about one of the big problems in medicine, which is people not actually taking their, their pill every day, they forget or they don't want to or... They, you know, they go on vacation, you know, visit your doctor once every six months, have a subcutaneous injection, and then there's no pill to take. There's nothing to remember to do because we have this long, long activity. And that, of course, we hope translates into, into better outcomes because you have consistency in silencing the gene as opposed to taking the pill one day, forgetting the next, and that this kind of on and off. So those are the two real big things that that we see as being, you know, really differentiating for RNAi. And you've touched on delivery, Paul. Yeah. What do you see as the other limitations of RNAi therapeutics? So delivery was the biggest challenge when we started on this journey, and it remains the biggest challenge. So double-stranded RNA does not look like a small molecule drug. It's gigantic, it's huge, and it's charged physical chemical properties that are very undrug-like. So you have to come up with ways of getting it into the cells that you need it to get to. So if I take the liver, for example, which is our, our first initiative and our first success, We've used two approaches there. Initially, what we did is we encapsulated inside a nanoparticle or LMP. And what that does, if you give that intravenously, it binds to certain proteins in the blood and it's taken up into the liver. So that's one way of delivering. But 
patients need to have an IV infusion. There's some requirement for pre-medication. It works, but it's, you know, if we wanted to take these medicines to bigger indications, more common conditions, it's not ideal. So what we've done is developed our conjugate platform, and that's all of our other drugs that have been approved have this technology where you take the double-stranded RNA, you modify the nucleotides so that it's resistant to digestion by nucleases in the circulation and in tissue, so it's durable. And then you add what we call a conjugate. So there's a short linker, and then you add something onto the end that targets that molecule to a certain cell type. And in the case of the liver, what we've done is we've added something called galnac, which is a sugar that's recognized by a receptor on the surface of hepatocytes liver cells. So when that's introduced by a subcutaneous injection, it gets into the circulation, the liver receptor recognizes the molecule and it takes it inside and then it stays there and gradually leaks out of of certain compartments within the cell over, like I said, a period of maybe three to six months. That's the key is being able to get it across the membrane of the cell and into the cell. So we've done similar things with our efforts in the central nervous system with a different conjugate. So similar that we've modified the RNA to make it stable. We have a linker, but now instead of the the Galnac sugar, we've added something else as a conjugate, which helps the, the RNA get into cells within the brain. So that's the key thing. Looking more broadly, you've talked about the indications you're working on. Can you tell us a bit about what the RNAi landscape looks like today? So when we started, and really for the, you know, the best part of the last 20 years, there was only a small handful of companies working on, on RNAi. And, and, and so Al Nylum's really been a pioneer and so there's, there's two things that have, have really happened. One is that if you look today, there are many, many more companies that are working on, on RNA interference. So there are smaller startup companies who have sprung up and, and are you know interested in. And then there are bigger pharmaceutical companies, more traditional companies that have now added RNAi within the auspices of the organization as a new modality, as a a new approach that they're using for drug discovery. So there's much more interest. And a lot of that came from the fact that we were the first to ever get an RNAi medicine approved and we showed that it could be done. And we've subsequently done it a number of other times with several other medicines. So there's much more interest. There's much more activity. There are many more companies working on it. The other thing that's, that's really changed is that when we began on this journey there was a very very solid focus on rare disease and for a number of reasons in in part because with a monogenic disease we knew for sure that the gene that we were targeting was the gene that was driving the the disease and so we taken some of the target risk out of the equation and also the development path for a small company in, in a rare disease is, is obviously um, more straightforward than, than going into something much larger. But the potential for these medicines to make a difference in more common 
diseases is huge for the reasons that I stated earlier, where you have this ability to target something that's not not targetable, but yet involved in the disease, but not targetable by traditional means. It's incredible. You see a crop of medicines for more common conditions starting to come through the pipeline. And, and you look at Alnilam's pipeline, for example, where we're, we're working on a medicine for hypertension, which obviously is a, a more prevalent condition. We have programs that are going into or are in phase one for type 2 diabetes, which is a more prevalent condition. So there's also this recognition that the same technology that has been used in these rare conditions can be applied to more common conditions and, and you know could potentially be you know something that is that is used quite widely what other challenges remain in this space you know in the development of rna i therapeutics the other main challenge for this class of medicine is more to do with actually making it and manufacturing it that's required, you know, for for example, for generating a monoclonal antibody or a recombinant protein has been optimized over the last however many decades. We're really at the beginning of that journey with, with RNA interference where there are ways of manufacturing at scale, we, we actually have our, our own manufacturing plant in Massachusetts in, in the U.S. where we do some of this work. But to really be able to develop a drug to be used in millions of individuals requires much more infrastructure than exists today. So that's part of the equation. The other thing is not just necessarily taking a brute force approach where you you just you know replicate these these manufacturing facilities over and over again it's the technology that you use to synthesize the molecule and that really is evolving but needs to evolve to a point where it can be done quicker cheaper more efficiently than it is today and so once we get to the point where we've made progress there, then we could see something that's equivalent to where you know antibodies are today in terms of uh, the ability to manufacture and the ability to you know lower your cost of goods, etc. Paul, are you able to elaborate on the manufacturing of these medicines? Yeah, so essentially what's what's done today is the process that everyone is familiar with when it comes to making oligonucleotides. There's there's nothing really special about it. There there's chemistry that's applied to the nucleotides and there's some nuances around the, the conjugates that are used and, and certain things are you know can be problematic. But in general the synthesis that's that's used today is the type of approach that everyone is is familiar with. What's Exciting about the future are, are some of the approaches that use, for example, enzymatic methods to synthesize the oligonucleotide, which is quite different from what's been done today and potentially could be game-changing in terms of the, the criteria that I mentioned before, the speed, the cost, etc., etc. But that's not been done at a large scale yet. Okay, fantastic. Well, now I thought it'd be great if we could kind of look a bit to the future. 
So how does RNAi fit into the broader landscape of precision medicine? So it's funny because up until relatively recently, we were the cool kids and then gene editing came along and now they're the cool kids. But but actually, I do think that RNAi is in many ways pioneering technology for precision medicine. If you think about what it is, right, it's a sequence of, of nucleotides. And that sequence of nucleotides matches the sequence of nucleotides of a gene within a cell in your body. It is precise. It's designed to be absolutely precise and absolutely complementary to that endogenous gene. So there's a couple of aspects that really make this exciting. One is is the combination of this technology with human genetics, where we can really understand the cause of a disease in an individual. And as I mentioned, there is no such thing as an undruggable target. Everything is druggable with RNAi. And so we can design our medicine to really attack the root cause of the disease within that individual. The other thing that's exciting about these approaches is to think about the potential for not just tailoring to a subset of a population, but within an individual, you could, for example, have a mutation. So you 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 have two copies of each gene. You could have a mutation on one copy and the other copy of of the gene is, is fine. And there are a number of diseases where you only want to silence the faulty copy and you want to leave the other copy alone. So now you can start to think about another level of precision, which is within that individual. Can you design your medicine so that it's really specific to that faulty copy of the gene, but leaves the other copy alone? And how would you go about that? But that's the potential for for this technology, and it paves the way for other things. Like I mentioned, the, the cool kids with gene editing. Well, that's a perfect example that could follow on from RNAi, they still have a long way to go, but being able to actually edit the genome and change the, the, the DNA sequence so that you repair that faulty copy of the gene, you leave the other copy alone. There are a number of cases like that because RNAi will serve as, as sort of a foundational demonstration that, that you can do this sort of thing and others will be able to build upon that. Paul, what other key innovations do you anticipate over the next five to ten years? In the world of of RNAi, I think what we're going to see is, number one, delivery to many more tissues. So we can deliver very well to liver, and we've shown now that we can deliver to the central nervous system. That list will, will grow, and we will be able to deliver to other tissues within the body and with that comes the potential to help many more patients with different types of diseases that we're we're unable to help today because of the limitations of where we can we can deliver to so i see that as being an incredible prospect the other thing i think that we're going to see with rnai is that it will become more commonplace So at the moment, it's still extremely novel. And to think that, you know, you could have a hypertension medicine that 
many people are, are administered and other conditions like type 2 diabetes, etc., that are, are much more prevalent, that would mean that the RNAi becomes something that many people have heard about, that they know that you go to your doctor and you get your injection once once every three or once every six months. And so it becomes more of a routine part of clinical practice. And I see that landscape evolving to the point where that is what we're going to see over, over the next little while. And then I think thirdly, it's going to be these other technologies where we've really laid the groundwork and shown how to develop these types of medicines where it's not a traditional small molecule, it's not a monoclonal antibody, but things like gene editing, new methods for delivering mRNA, etc., etc. I think those will start to really emerge and show some clinical data that will, will allow us to decide whether they're, they're viable or not. Those are the three things I think that we're going to see in the next you know, five to ten years. Thank you, Paul. It certainly looks like an exciting future for RNAi. Um, Unfortunately, that's all we'll have time to discuss today, but thank you so much for sharing those details on the development of RNA interference therapeutics and exploring the potential evolution of this technology. On behalf of European Pharmaceutical Review and our Nylon Pharmaceuticals, thank you all for listening, and we hope you'll join us for our next episode. (laughs) 